Please remain standing as you're able. Uh, and as we come before God's Word, we normally do so by reciting the first sentence of the Shema, uh, adding uh, the love of neighbor in Leviticus 19.18. But this morning's different because our scripture is the Shema, uh, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. So if you'll follow after me, it is printed in your bulletins. If you'll keep your bulletins handy, you'll find the rest of it there. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. And together with me, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your head. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. I've had a few people ask me about the story on the evening, ABC Evening News. I think it was Tuesday about the pastors who no longer believed in God, but because of the economy, they needed to keep their jobs, so they were still uh, preaching and teaching and leading in uh, the church. And I guess that might have bothered me a little bit, but I was bothered a whole lot more by what I read the next day in a Christian uh, magazine called Christianity Today. It's an excerpt uh, from a book by Drew Dyke, D-Y-C-K, and the book is entitled, Generation X Christian, only the X is EX. And he talked about the statistics about uh, young adults today, 18 to 29. He said they are the fastest growing segment uh, in our population who now claim their religious affiliation as none, N-O-N-E. He said when you look at everyone in America who says uh, none and you get to the uh, 18 to 29, it's the fastest growing bracket. He said, and what's interesting when you look within that is two-thirds of the people, 18 to 29, who say they have no religion, who say they have no faith, are people who earlier in their life as a youth were part of the Christian faith. He calls them the deconverted. He said, at the rate that things are going presently, when these youth hit 30 years of age, 80% of our youth, Uh, When they turn 30, he says, will be disengaged from the Christian faith. He said, you can take a picture of your youth group today, or we can take a picture of our confirmation class. Every confirmation Sunday takes a picture out in the front uh, by Bassey Road. And he said, you can take a marker and mark out four of every five faces in that picture, for they will not be a part of the worshiping community by the time they're 30. Now, I'm not here to say the sky is falling, the sky is falling, because there's another side to this argument, and Rodney Stark, a sociologist at Baylor, I think articulates it pretty well when he points out that it has always been the case that uh, young adults have sort of drifted from the church and the faith for a while and then returned, and and he anticipates uh, the return of many. Uh, but, uh, But it is interesting to note 
that uh, that young adulthood is getting stretched out longer and longer these days because people are waiting uh, longer to get married and waiting longer to have children. So the period uh, from which they are typically away from church is getting longer. And the jury's out under whether that period is is too long and whether they'll be able, able to overcome that and return. Uh, and the other thing that's of note is um, that the environment when uh, and the culture when I was that age was a lot friendlier and more supportive of Christian faith involvement than the culture that we find today. Again, I'm not here to say the sky is falling. It's hard to know where that's going to shake out. But I am here to say this. The issue that we have is an issue that Moses faced in Deuteronomy. And the issue can be put very plainly. Will our children grow up and have faith? Will they grow up to have faith? Will they grow up to live our faith? Uh, Moses was with a generation of people who had seen the mighty acts of God, the plagues, had seen the parting of the Red Sea, had uh, been fed miraculously with manna and with quail. And now he wondered, what about the children? And he asked if they would have faith in a way. Uh, He's asking this question and he gives us, I think, the answer here. In the Shema, the answer is part of that depends on us. What will we do in front of the children, the children of our families, the children of our community, the children of our faith community? And what he says is this. He said, you must impress uh, the faith on uh, your children. Uh, The translation we used this morning said recite. Another translation says instill or inculcate. In other words, you need to be intentional. And he said, you should talk about it. When you're walking down the road and then when you're sitting down, you should talk about the faith with them and live the faith with them. When they get up in the morning, when they go to bed at night, uh, you should take the words of God and write them down. They should be like a, a sign or an emblem around your hand. They should also be on your forehead and on the gates of your house. What we might say is this is sort of a saturation education that your children should see and experience Life with God all day long, everywhere, all the time. And the rabbis picked up on this, I think, much better than Christians did through the centuries about education. One of the rabbis put it this way. He said, let your children see you studying the Bible. Don't tell them to study the Bible or they'll just grow up and tell their children to study the Bible and no one will study the Bible. They understood That faith was something that needed to be lived out in front of our children. And in fact, the Shema that we say now for a number of years every Sunday morning is meant to be recited in public. There's something about doing it and saying it together uh, that makes the faith more transmittable. It's a public faith, not uh, just a privatized faith or an intellectualized faith. It's a faith that's lived out in front of everyone. And so Moses' advice is live that faith in front of your kids all the time. Now, what does that faith look like? Well, Moses says that that faith looks like the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And uh, we've talked about the Shema a number of times over the past three years. But let me do just a quick review. One of the things we know is that the Shema was not normative for Moses' day. I mean, that it was important, but it didn't take the central importance until after the people returned as exiles 
uh, from Babylon after being slaves to Assyria and Babylon, there was something that grabbed a hold of them that said, we need to keep this in front of our kids. We need to say it and practice it more frequently. And so then under Greek rule and Roman rule down to the days of Jesus, the Shema became central. And so when asked Jesus, oh, what's the most important commandment? He was quick to answer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And then he added, love your neighbors yourself. By Jesus' day, it was central. And remains central uh, for Judaism today. George Robinson, who wrote a couple of books uh, called Essential Judaism and Essential Torah, is a writer for the New York Times and a Jew. When he rediscovered his Jewish faith and heritage, he studied the Shema, and he said what he found was that he calls the Shema the starting point for faith, for Jewish faith. And he said, and when you put it together with Jesus' great commandment, he said it is quite likely that that one sentence, is responsible for more good in Western civilization than any other sentence ever written. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. So it became normative in Jesus' day to, to recite the Shema when you woke up in the morning and when you went to bed at night and any time you came uh, upon Scripture, you would do the same. And it continued to be normative through the centuries. So much so that in the uh, aftermath of World War II, when the liberators would come to a concentration camp run by the, by the Nazis in order to find out if any of the Jews in that pile of bodies they discovered were still alive, they would start this way. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu. And they would wait to see if any weak voices would join in on the Shema. And they knew they were alive and they would go and, uh, and dig for them. And they, after the war, when they went to European orphanages and tried to find Jewish children and place them with Jewish families, they would walk into the orphanage, the playground, or the cafeteria, and they would say, Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, and they would see how many of the children joined in. And they would then know that those were Jewish children taken from their families by the Nazis, and they would uh, try to reunite them with Jewish families. It was so central to who they were and what uh, and what they are, and it remains central today. But what you need to know about it is it's not just a public declaration of faith. It's not just something you say. The Shema is something you do. In fact, the word here in, uh, in, for Israel doesn't mean just listen, but it means act on it. And how are you to act on it? Well, Moses is pretty clear. You act on it with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Well, what would that look like? Well, all your heart is this. In Hebrew, heart means the center, sort of the command center of the life. It's the place out of which decisions are made, choices are made. Remember Jesus said, out of the heart, a good heart comes good works, and, uh, and out, of, uh, out of a bad heart will come bad, uh, bad fruit. The heart is kind of the center. And so the way they interpreted it is to love God with all your heart means that you would give God total uh, devotion and total allegiance. Uh, that that your 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 mind uh, and thoughts uh, would be wrapped around God. You see, for centuries, people have debated about how can you command somebody to love. I mean, isn't love a feeling that we have or we don't? And the answer to that is no. Love is an action in the scriptures, and so that's why you can command people to love God. And so when you stand up and say the Shema on Sunday, you're not saying I'm going to have a warm feeling about God today. I'm going to feel all fuzzy about everything happening in my life. 
No, it's I'm going to devote myself totally to God and what God wants. That's what you're saying in the Shema. I'm going to be about total devotion in my action. And then to love God with all your soul. The rabbis in Jesus' day interpreted soul as your, as your very life. In other words, I'll worship God even if it kills me or if they kill me for it. And think how often in Jewish history this has happened, that they have been killed um, uh, for the worship and the practice of uh, their faith. Rabbi Kiba, a very famous rabbi, a hundred years after Jesus, was executed by the Romans in a revolt against Rome. And they tied him to a stake and they started peeling his skin off. And then they lit the fire. And while they were burning him to death, he recited the Shema and he smiled. And his disciples were right there by him while he was burning to death. And they said, why are you smiling? And he said, finally, he said, I can love the Lord my God with all my soul. Because the interpretation meant to love God even if they kill me for it. And uh, by the way, since then, uh, many observant Jews on their deathbed will recite the Shema just like um, Akiva. So love the Lord your God with total devotion and loyalty. Love God even if it costs you your life. And then finally, with all your strength or with all your might. Or another translation says, with all your veriness. In other words, everything that's in your candy jar. Everything that you bring to the table, that is your strength and might. Your time, your energy, your possessions, your finances, they are all at God's disposal. And so um, the one thing the rabbi said is that we should have glowing possessions. They should glow, G-L-O-W. In other words, we should use them in a way that makes the world a better place. That God would approve of the way that we're using possessions so they would shine before other people. Take all that you have and all that you are, everything in your candy jar, and you put it before God. And that, Moses said, is the way you're to live life. You are to live life with a total commitment. And if your children see that total commitment in your family and if your community's children see it, then more than likely they will take up the faith as well. See, Moses knew, I think, what sometimes escapes us today. Today we believe if we can just get the right beliefs in our children, they'll do the right things. If we can just educate them properly, just teach them uh, to have the right attitudes about God, the right understandings, they'll do the right thing. Moses didn't buy that. Moses said, let's teach them full commitment. Let's teach them to do the right things, and then the right beliefs will follow from it. It starts from action and then leads to beliefs rather than starting from beliefs. And leading to action. In his book, Generation X Christian, he, uh, Drew hypothesizes on uh, why so many um, young adults leave the faith, why they deconvert. And he said one of the things that seems to happen, and you probably uh, have uh, heard about this, people will go to college and they'll end up in some sort of compromise, some sort of thing that they were practicing something they'd never practiced. They forgot to do something they always said they would do. They did things they would never want to do, but they did them. And so the conclusion they draw is, I must not really be a believer after all, which is an, an errant conclusion. And so they, to make peace with their own conscience in life, they drop out of the faith. Others take their faith as it is, and they run into arguments from other people, perhaps those who read what, what are uh, people that are known as the super atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, all those people who make a living writing uh, about a God they don't believe in. And, um, and so our beliefs, they say, get shaken, and so we fall away. 
And there are many reasons. He said, but here's what I'm finding out as I interview young adults. He said, what I'm finding is the people who fall away and don't return, had he said a very unchallenging version of the Christian faith. He said they had sort of what we might call a Christianity light. They were taught the only thing that mattered is this, what you believed about God, and that you believed in God and tried to be a nice person. And that way of thinking doesn't hold up against the tests of this world. And he said how different it was from Moses' day when they were taught that your life with God is everything you have and everything you are. It's the most challenging experience of your life, and it's a continuous experience. He said one of the reasons our young adults fall away is because they've never been discipled and they've never known any disciples. They just got inoculated against Christianity with a very light dose. Well, it's a theory. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. But one of the things that I learned from him and I learned from Moses is that it really doesn't make much sense for me to look around and complain about how the culture doesn't really help me raise my children and the community's children. But rather, it gives me courage to look in the mirror and say, what am I doing for these children? Do I love the Lord my God in front of them with all my heart and all my soul and all my strength?